Aloha, you are listening to Chad Ford's MBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Before I jump into the podcast, I want to talk to you about a nonprofit that is dear to my heart and that I think basketball fans will want to support. I've been Peace Players' biggest fan over the past 15 years. Peace Players is the perfect combination of my two biggest passions, basketball and peace building. The nonprofit brings together young people in divided communities in the Middle East, Northern Ireland, Cyprus, South Africa, and they're here in the U.S. in Chicago, L.A., Brooklyn, Detroit, and Baltimore, bringing young people together through the game of basketball. NBA luminaries like Steve Kerr, R.C. Buford, and Sam Presti sit on the board. As many of you know, the game has a powerful ability to heal wounds and bridge divides and teach collaborative problem solving. The impact they have had on me and on the new book I just wrote, Dangerous Love, has been life-changing. I've made over 50 trips to the Middle East and dozens to other Peace Player sites as a volunteer, consultant, and board member. I believe deeply that the work they are doing is the key to creating sustainable peace. And I know they, like so many other NGOs, are hurting in the wake of COVID-19. So we're kicking off our two weeks of the NBA Big Board Dangerous Love Peace Players campaign. I will be donating all of my profits to my new book, Dangerous Love, over the next two weeks if you pre-order the book now when you head over to www.dangerouslovebook.com. I have also just recorded an episode of my other podcast, The Dangerous Love Pod, featuring some of my favorite peace player participants from the Middle East, Doha and Toot. They take us through an incredible journey of how being a part of peace players and a championship team for the last several years has completely changed their lives. It is powerful, to say the least. You can tune into the podcast and pre-order the book at this special link. Go to www.dangerouslovebook.com. I will donate all of my profits if you click on the link and buy the book. Please consider supporting peace players to help an important, world-changing cause. Today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your first order. And I'm your host, Chad Ford, and my guest today is the athletic senior writer and host of the Hollinger and Duncan podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network, John Hollinger. What's up, Chad? John, we've been doing a bunch of redrafts, and that's been really cool. And I've been doing a bunch of other 2020 stuff, and I thought, hey, it's time to bring John in and get him talking about the 2020 draft. I know you just did an article on Athletic about it as well. And I want to set this up because we've we've actually been doing drafts together for a long time while you were at ESPN and taking your analytics approach. There was always some meshing in with the big board at the time as you Mm -hmm. put together a formula around this. But I think that it would be helpful at the start of this, as we dive into 2020 to hear your approach to scouting the draft. You, you did it primarily at ESPN through an analytics approach, but then when you went into the front office with the Grizzlies, you were out scouting just the same way that NBA scouts were out scouting as well. I think sometimes people may have a little bit of a misconception about you and how you approach ranking prospects and looking at prospects in the draft. And so I I just want to start 
the podcast off by having you tell our listeners what your approach is. How are you putting together your list for scouting the draft? Well, I tell you, here's what's funny. And what I learned over my seven years with the Grizzlies is that when people talk about using analytics or using in-person scouting, those are probably the second and third most important things. And the number one most important thing is all the detective work you have to do on the background and the medical on these players, finding out what kind of kid they are, because usually they are a kid, right? Usually you're talking about kids who are 19 years old. You're trying to project what they're like when they're 25. You're trying to figure out how, how driven they are, how much do they love the game, uh, what their background situation is, uh, all, all the things that go into uh, what's going to frame them to be able to succeed two, three, four, five years down the road. Because unless you have one of the top two or three picks, none of these guys are good enough right now. You're, you're projecting ahead as to what they're going to be. Who are the guys who are going to improve? Who are the guys who are going to put the work in? Who are the guys who mentally have the ability to learn new skills and expand their game? And, it, and it's tough, and that's part of the reason we, we get it wrong a lot. But uh, I, from having done that on, on the inside, it really staggered me. And, and obviously, see, being through a few cycles uh, of it, too, with the Grizzlies, some that worked out better than others, um, really staggered me how important that background was. Um, and it's not to say the other part doesn't matter. I mean, there – it's a talent business at the end of the day. You need to identify the guys who have enough talent to succeed in any case. You could have the best background in the world. If you just, if, I mean, if you just aren't talented, it won't matter, right? But, um, and, that, and that's where the analytics and the in-person scouting really come in. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, I feel like that part gets missed a lot in the discussion that it's not just watching the tape and it's not just looking at the numbers. It's, it's this other factor that really goes into what kind of what kind of development track a guy is going to have, and I think some of the teams that have done drafting the best, um, you know, if you think about it, especially like San Antonio and their history going back, have gotten the biggest advantage by looking at that part very closely. There used to be a joke when we were at the combine that the Spurs were the CIA. I think that was the, the, the joke for them. And they always would sit in a corner together and the Spurs wouldn't talk and they shared, they'd never shared their secrets. They never wanted to talk to anybody about the draft. And those secrets weren't primarily around talent evaluation. They were the secrets about everything else that they've discovered about the prospect along the way. And I, I'm 100% with you as much as I also was watching games in person and on tape and consulting yours and other analytics, so much of it came down to getting to meet the player, getting to know the player, getting to know people around the player, getting information around that makes a really big difference. And and one of the hard things is certainly for an NBA team, but even so sometimes as a writer, there's only so much that you can actually talk about and write about, uh, you know, frankly, uh, with 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 some of these players, you can't always get into the specifics of of what you're finding out or what have you. And so, a lot of times, there's a lot of frustration from the everyday fans following the draft. Why is this guy lower? Why is he higher? And there's sometimes some things you just really can't talk about. And even on the medical side, yeah, that it, it's tricky because that those medical 
records are really theirs and you know sharing those with the world without without their permission there's some real ethical questions about that yeah not to mention you know hipaa violations and and whatnot so yeah we were always really careful with that on the front office side for those reasons too and and so that's a big part of it that's there i'm assuming you have a fewer less resources now than you did with the grizzlies to go and get all that intel the same way yeah exactly that i missed that <laughs> that's uh the, the, that's that's something where uh I, I wish i had access to that in this draft i'm, I'm sure it would change how I felt about about a few guys. I don't know which guys, but I, you know what I mean. Just having having that extra dose of of background from having people out there going campus visits, talking to all the guys um, who are around the player every day. You you just get such a broader picture of what of what the guy is really like. And sometimes I guess that can send you off the track a, a little bit, but us, usually it actually if I go back and look historically, that information was helpful a lot more than it, than it took you off the path. Well, I'll put it that way. So let's put the rumor to rest, the stereotype to rest forever that John Hollinger puts together his draft boards in an Excel spreadsheet, never watches these players, isn't scouting, is just putting together some sort of formula and that's it. There's a lot more to it that you're bringing and have always brought uh, to this. But with that said, what do you see right now the role of analytics in in projecting players for the draft? I, I know there's been decades worth of work yeah. on this, not just from you, but from a lot of NBA teams that have poured a lot of money in this, hoping that there is some sort of formula that can help give them guidance. It certainly doesn't drive everything, yeah. but that gives them some guidance where is the state of analytics as far as projecting players for the draft right now? It has predictive value. It has predictive value beyond just looking at a, you know, at a random someone online's top 50 board, whether it's, you know, you or one of the other draft experts. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think there's some predictive value to it. It's not a magic bullet though. And you, you go back and look and, 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 you could see where we had guys analytically and some of them were, were still way off. And some of them, you could kind of see it from watching them play like, wow, that an the analytics really doesn't line up with, with what I'm seeing at all. Um, and conversely, there were some guys who were, uh, who maybe didn't have amazing analytics. I mean, we talked about Zach Levine on one of our recent podcasts, like his, his analytics weren't good at all, but you, you, just watch him in person and be oh, holy crap is this guy athletic right and Derek and, Rose back in the day yeah Rose Rose was an interesting case because he his freshman year at Memphis I mean he really blew up late uh so I think that skewed it you know if you just looked at his full season numbers um one thing I do like to do is take a look at the guy's schedule just either in conference games or like after January 1st basically which is usually the conference season um because you get a sample uh you you don't have you don't have the uh the games you know against st leo's that they win 110 to 54 mixed in there right and then you, you have conference opponents that see them twice that scout them that know what to prepare for it's it's closer to an nba situation uh so i do like looking at that and then it's later in the year which for a lot of the one and dones it allows them to get their sea legs before you really hone in 
Um, so I've always liked looking at conference games for that reason and using that as an evaluation tool. As you as you look at the predictive value of the analytics, are there any stats that particularly stand out to you as like, okay, this is this is a canary in the coal mine one way or the other. If we see this particular sort of stat, it tells us something that generally turns out to be true about the player later on in their career. Is there anything out there? I know it's not necessarily there's one stat to tell it yeah. all, but are there some things out there? Like I'm thinking of, for example, it seems to be generally accepted now that three-point shooting percentage isn't as telling as free-throw percentage Correct. in predicting yeah. whether a player is going to be a good three-point shooter in the NBA. Uh, that's correct. And th- there's there are some other things tools you can look at, too, to kind of tweak that a little bit in terms of how frequently they shoot and whatnot. Uh, but that's generally the case, yeah. Um, there, there are some other things that have some pretty good predictive value. I mean, steals is always a pretty good indicator, especially if it's a team that doesn't – it can get – you see, you got to look at it situationally, though, because some teams that full court press the whole game, like all the guys from VCU had crazy steal numbers, but, like, they, it wasn't because they were – crazy prospects it was because they they pressed the whole game um but for like a half court team like steals is a pretty good indicator stat in terms of because it's a cross section of feel and athleticism and and so that can that can tell you a lot sometimes um the the free throw percentage is a really good one um and then uh especially for bigger players you know when you look when you look at blocks and rebounds, it does give you a, a little bit of a proxy for just overall athleticism and leaping ability and whether it's going to be enough for the NBA level. Um, but, I mean, still, the thing that's the most predictive at all, here's here's a shocker, is just how good was the guy, right? Like, his overall effectiveness is still the most predictive thing. You know, when we get deep in the weeds on individual stats – Hey, if a guy was an awesome in college, there's a good chance he's going to be an NBA player, right? So, uh, so you know, sometimes the simple master of the obvious thing is still, you know, the, the most indicative. And when you when you're comparing the analytics to the scouting, and they don't match up, where do you lean? Right, the analytics say one thing, the in-person scouting says another thing. Yeah. Because sometimes they do diverge, right? I think the thing, the first thing you do is you go back. I mean, that the because I can think of several examples of guys we kind of fought over in the room for these exact reasons. And it always comes back to you go back and you watch the tape again and you, and you watch again and again. And you see, you try to see if those things that are being reflected in your numbers are showing up in the tape and you missed it the first time or if they're just – not there, and uh, or or if it's the opposite case, if the guy has bad numbers, you could see, you go back to the tape and see, okay, well, why do the scouts like these guys? What are these bad numbers telling us that we need to watch out for here? And that's that's really where the art meets the science, though. After you left ESPN, Kevin Pelton came to ESPN and was doing some of that same analytics work for us. And looking at his stuff over the years, there was one thing that that actually stood out to me as I looked at all of his spreadsheets over the years. There was a certain cutoff point where if your analytics score was below this number, I couldn't find one player in the NBA that was a successful player. That's funny you say that because 
I know we've used it this we used it this way in Memphis, and I think other teams have used it this way too. There to to have a cutoff where where you just say the probability of your being a player is so low that there's no way it's worth using a draft pick on you. And if our scouts really like the guy, we can talk to him after the draft about two ways and free agency or whatnot. But there's just there was there was absolutely a cutoff point where it was like there's no way in hell we're wasting a draft pick on somebody who uh, projects with this low probability to become an NBA player. I thought, and I thought that was actually really helpful, right? Like a lot of times it would elevate players that aren't going to make it, right? I, I, you know, guys are going to get elevated statistically, analytically that aren't going to make it, but there did really truly seem to be a cutoff point where you can kind of write that player off. And, and I, and I thought one, and I don't ever remember getting burned on any of those either. You know what I mean? Like it, it was, it was pretty, (laughs) it was pretty definite, like, nope. (laughs) And it saved a lot of time, man. (laughs) You know, you think about all the players we go through as a staff, uh, you're really evaluating a hundred plus to get down to the, 60 or fewer. I mean, if you have the 60th pick, you're going to make a board with 60 names on it. And then you have other names on it that you think maybe won't get drafted, but Hey, we kind of like this guy for summer league or whatever. And so you're going through a lot of guys. So just that, that weed out actually saves you a lot of time as a staff. I remember us having this conversation several years ago about Russ Smith out of Louisville, who was putting up big, big numbers Mm -hmm. in college basketball, but his analytic numbers were abysmal. And if you just looked at his line and his number and then went back and looked at every past draft and looked at the players that were at that number or below that number, there wasn't anybody. Mm-hmm. And it just does give you that level of confidence. And so maybe one thing, if your listeners are skeptical about analytics, when John tells you there's no way analytically this guy's going to make in the NBA, you probably ought to listen to him because he's probably looking at that threshold and what it's panned out over the years that you're just not going to do it yeah. uh, above this level. And that still gives a lot of wiggle room. And it certainly becomes harder on the positive end at times to know, okay, these numbers look really, really good. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam Decker for years was an analytics darling, looked really, really good. Hasn't really panned out that way in the NBA. So it can get it wrong that way, but it can also be very, very telling about who's not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, you ready to get put on the spot a little bit? Yeah, sure, let's do it, man. Okay, we'll be back on the next segment with John Hollinger where we talk about the top picks in the 2020 NBA draft. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. I want to talk to you about our new sponsor, Built Bars. I'm a runner, and I've been constantly looking for a great-tasting, low-sugar, high-protein energy bar really for the last decade. I've tried every brand, but usually get turned off by the high sugar content or chalky, bad taste they leave in my mouth. Then I found Built Bars, and I'm crazy about them. They taste better than any energy bar I've ever tried. They're soft, they're chewy, they have 16 amazing flavors, and they are loaded with protein and only contain a few grams of sugar and net carbs. They are the equivalent of a healthy candy bar. For someone who tries to stay away from both sugar and carbs, they're incredible. My go-to bar after a run is coconut almond. It tastes like an almond joy without all the sugar and carbs and with an incredible 18 grams of protein. 
I'm also crazy about the mint brownie, the orange chocolate cream, and the salted caramel chocolate. I'd probably be crazy about the peanut butter flavors, but my wife and daughter snatch them up every time I get a box before I can get a bite. The cool thing is that on their website, they let you mix and match the bars that you want in any combination so everyone gets their favorite. So go to BuiltBar.com, use promo code LOCKEDON, and you'll get $10 off your first order. Use promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. And we're back with John Hollinger talking about the 2020 NBA draft. This is not a redraft. And I want to start, we're going to get to the analytic darlings and the the, the sleepers and all that other stuff a little bit later. I want to just talk about the consensus guys right now who seem to be atop every board, whether that's on the internet or just talking to NBA general managers and get your take on a few of these guys. We've discussed them a couple of times in the podcast, but I think people are generally really interested in these guys because they're the guys that have the best shot at going number one in the draft. I want to start with LaMelo Ball. To me, he's got to be one of the top picks because he, at the end of the day, he can do things that guys in the league can't do, right? With his with his ability to pass, and I think it's not just pass, his ability to handle the ball and penetrate. He's a much better penetrator than his older brother. Um, much much more uh, uh, quickness getting to spots on the ball in the half court, and that really opens up the floor, and he can make every pass. He has weaknesses in his game, uh, certainly. Uh, defensively, right now he doesn't really – put forth the necessary effort. Uh, if you if you watch what he does in Australia, he gambles for steals a lot, doesn't really stay solid. I don't think he's been coached a lot at that end. That's going to be a work in progress. Uh, his shot is certainly a work in progress. Uh, so that's, that, that's going to require uh, a team to, to invest something there. So I think in a normal draft, you wouldn't be talking about him as a, as a potential number one pick. But in this draft where there's not really what you'd call a true number one, I think he has a good chance to be the number one guy. And this is a case where it becomes a little bit harder analytically as well. He didn't play college basketball. His high school thing was all messed up. How do you translate statistics in like from Australia? Yeah, because it's, it's, it's not a great league. Um, and the other thing you don't really even have with him – because uh, we found that um, a lot of the high-level AAU leagues, actually, if you take the stats from that, they do have predictive value. Uh, but he didn't really even play in those. And so, you know, like the EYBL uh, and whatnot. So you, you're you're operating analytically. You're op- you're flying a little bit blind. I mean, you do. He played a, even the Australian league. He played 11 games. Like you just didn't play a lot. You you just don't have a lot to work with. Uh, so. I think the eye test and the background has to be the majority of your evaluation. Now, uh, f- from people I've talked to in Australia, uh, it, it doesn't seem like the background's going to be a negative on him. 
uh, even that, you know, there's the issues with the father or whatever, but you see, I mean, Lonzo has been a great pro that's never been a problem with his teams. Uh, and I, th I think people are anticipating the same with LaMelo. Absolutely. I'm hearing the same thing. And it's interesting because there is a stigma and you know this as well as anybody, GMs can also be a little stuck in their ways and sometimes they can just not like something about a guy and it becomes hard to convince them otherwise. And so there's definitely teams that are talking to that are still talking that way, but all the intel actually seems like from a maturity standpoint, from a professionalism standpoint, from a desire to play the game, loves the game, is going to put in the work. It all comes out really good for LaMelo Ball. And so... I don't think that's going to be an issue. And you're right, at least on the eye test here, it's clear that this guy sees the game in a special, special way. In fact, better than the vast majority of NBA players. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's where, and that's what, what I get back to. Like he does, like the guys, guys in the league can't do this, most of them. So this, this, is, this is something truly unique and and special. So this is this is the thing you can't just sign with your mid-level exception in free agency or whatever. Th these gifts. Okay, let's go to Anthony Edwards, out of Georgia. Yeah, obviously has the physical profile of being an exciting number one pick. His game was much more erratic this year in Georgia, though. Depending on the night that you saw him, some nights he looked special, and some nights you were really scratching your head. What do you think about him? Yeah, he's an interesting one. I saw him play in person three times. Um, definitely has the the body, the physical gifts, can explode off the floor, can slide his feet on defense, uh, big, strong frame, can shoot off the dribble. Um, and yet there's this Wiggins vibe that he gives off where the sum is right right now is so much less than the, than the parts. Uh Settles for a lot of jump shots, is actually not a great shooter right now. And his form can be a little uh, – it, it varies. His catch and shoot looks completely different than his shot off the dribble. And he uh, – even you, you watch him in, in warm-ups, just not a super accurate shooter right now. Uh, he did take up the game a little later th than most guys of this level. He he grew up wanting to be a football player and switched to basketball early in his high school career. So uh, he may be a little bit behind that way, but his his feel for the game is still pretty bad. And to me, it's not just a question of feel. It's um, his action. His motor just doesn't run that hot. And. You could see it like I, I, I'm not sure I've seen a guard who was so regularly the last player up and down the court as as with him. Like it just doesn't always just go. And I, th I think that's a real concern that teams are going to have to dig into uh, as they do their background on him. It's interesting because I, I generally like to talk about what a player can do and as opposed to piling on what they can't do. But if there's a red flag for me, especially if you're talking about taking a player at the top of the draft, when you say feel isn't great and motor doesn't run high, that's th those are those are like major red flags when you're talking about a guy being the number one pick in the draft because I don't typically see those two things. You can fix a lot of stuff about your game and you can improve a lot of stuff about your game, but I don't generally see players dramatically improve their feel for the game nor their motor. Right. 
when it comes to the next level. Yeah. Those two things seem to be a little bit more instinctual than, you know, learned behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we'll, we'll see where he go. I, the feel you can sort of give him half a mulligan on just in where he is developmentally, uh, as, as a basketball player, uh, coming, coming into it full time, maybe a little later than some other guys. I, the, the motor thing drives me crazy and I, I don't get that part. And yet, I mean, he still put up really good numbers for a freshman guard. Like you go back and look through history, like not a lot of guys have done this in their freshman year. Scores at a high rate, uh, pretty good rebound rate, uh, actually able to make some, make some pass. He's, he's kind of a one read passer, I would call him, but because he's able to, when he does get in the paint, he's able to make some deliveries just because he's, he can break down the defense, uh, settles for way too many jump shots right now. I think if you got him, focused on using his athleticism to get in the paint more that would really be helpful and even like watching this Georgia team that wasn't even that good there were times where they were way better when Edwards was either not on the ball or not on the court at all so a a confounding player the teams are really going to have to dig on but still probably a top two or top three guy (laughs) in this draft all right one other guy that maybe was the preseason guy and still some teams are high. Some teams have a lot of question marks. James Wiseman, big, big man out of, out of Memphis. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sold on him. Uh, I'll, so a couple things here. Um, first of all, in general, as a center now, you need to be awesome to, to justify getting drafted ahead of a perimeter player. Uh, just the the way the league is going, the value the value on the position, and the uh, the fact that you can get decent centers relatively cheaply in free agency has has pushed the value proposition on drafting a center down to me. Um, second of all, Wiseman is uh, is of an archetype of uh, that was maybe more valuable in uh, you know. 2000 than in 2020 where he's I mean he's big I mean you watch him uh just going through the layup line you just oh my goodness you know seven one with a seven six wingspan moves pretty smoothly uh shoots with some touch like he's not a great shooter but for a guy his size and his age like he's got some touch and so you see those things you say oh my goodness um again uh not sure how hot his motor runs in the games. It's hard. He played three NCAA games. Uh, one of them, he was dunking on a Nerf hoop, basically, against the number 339-ranked Ken Palm team, uh, South Carolina State. I mean, the tape from that game is absurd, but it's also a complete mismatch of a game. When I watched him against Oregon, I, I, I wasn't that impressed. I, 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 I just felt like there, there wasn't any – uh, anything overpowering about him that that would compel me to to take him over a perimeter player? Like, do I think he could be a starting center? Absolutely. Do, does he does he scream all star to me? I I don't think so. And I actually I actually wonder, like, even if I'm choosing among fives, I might like Onyeka Okongwu better. Well, you're not the only one there uh, on that one. In fact, let's take that, and we're gonna take one more break. 
And we're going to come back and talk about a couple of other guys that you may have at the very top of your board that we haven't discussed. We'll be back. You're listening to the NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. And we're back with John Hollinger. We've talked about a couple of top prospects, LaMelo Ball, James Wiseman, Anthony Edwards. Are one of those three guys on top of your board, John? Uh, so I, uh, I, I got to go with LaMelo right now. I, j- I just think, would I get back to that passing skill and just that, I mean, that is the, that is the most unique thing in this whole draft. That is, that is the one thing that stands out the most out of any player in this whole draft. So or, if you were, if you were tempted to take a guy that wasn't LaMelo mm-hmm. here, who's that guy? I've gone a few different ways on this uh, because I, I think it, I think it gets pretty close after that. I mean, Ed Edwards, I mean, he's, he's talented, no doubt about it. And uh, he's probably the most physically talented guy in the draft. Um, you know, the other guy that I look at, I can't quite get there to have him as like a top two guy, but Killian Hayes is an interesting prospect, man. Uh, he's got, you know, we talk about motor and feel and all that. I mean, he's got that. He, he can read the game. He's got a lot of really advanced moves. Uh, he's not a good shooter right now, but he shoots very well from the free throw line, which as we talked about earlier, uh, portends well for his three-point shot eventually, even though he doesn't shoot it well right now. Um, he's still young. He's playing at a pretty high level over in Europe. I mean, he's not like, he's not like a Luca level <laughs> European prospect. So let's not get crazy. But the guy I comped him to is like D'Angelo Russell with more defense and more, a little bit more give a shit. And so I, I think that, that translates to a good player. Uh, Kevin O'Connor, the ringer. Well, Kevin O'Connor of the Ringer has him number one on his board, so he'll be happy to hear yeah, this. Yeah, and actually, uh, I think Ethan Strauss at The Athletic uh, has him at number one, too. Like, he's been he's become a trendy player, without a doubt. I, I just don't know athletically. Like, I just don't think he's on the same level as these other guys. I think it's going to be one of those deals like Russell where he has to do a lot of work to get a small advantage and get a mid-ranger. And, and I'm not sure how much pressure he's really going to be able to put on the rim at the NBA level. Does the fact that he can't go right at all concern you yeah i mean it it does although i mean we've seen i mean that's kind of like d'angelo russell right like (laughs) so uh i i I do think the right hand will get better over time but yeah there's no question he is extremely left-hand dominant some teams like i also really like this player compare him a little bit tyrese halliburton iowa state i think he's also becoming a a bit of a trendy prospect among some teams, not because he has that super high ceiling, but he also seems to have a super high floor. And where do you have him in in your mix? Uh, I really like him too. Uh, I don't have him in the mix for like number one or anything like that, but uh, I think he's in the top half of the lottery for sure. Uh, Luck of the draw. I ended up seeing him six times in person last year, I think. Uh, so got, got a pretty good feel for him as a player. Then obviously watched him this year, his sophomore year on, on TV a bunch. It was a, you know, it was a horrible team this year. Uh, his assist rate really got dragged down by all the 
genius passes he would make that got flubbed by uh, teammates and turned into non-events on the stat sheet, which is unfortunate. He's he's good. I mean, he's the concerns about him, I think, half-court pick and roll, doesn't get to a pull-up real well, doesn't like blast off off his dribble, handles a little high. I think you see him more as a combo guard, like second side kind of guy. He shoots this funky set shot, but he's really accurate with it and seems to have pretty good range on it. Uh, defensively, great length, a narrow body that needs to fill out and maybe not as great on the ball as you might expect, but he's a, he's a really good prospect. I think he's going to be a starter in the league, a good player. I don't know if he's an all-star. I think he's just one of those guys that's a good player on a winning team. Just the incredible, another guy that has incredible feel for the game and another guy that from a background standpoint, everyone talks about is just an A-plus type of young man and leader in the locker room, everything else. That That's also going to be a major plus, I think, for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, do, I do expect him to get picked high. One sleeper in your top five. Is there a guy in your top five that we haven't talked about? Well, you know, I mentioned Onyeka Kongwu a little bit. Uh, who had a tremendous season at USC. I think he can be uh, a Bam Adebayo type player in terms of playing four and five and having the feet to play both those positions at the NBA level. Tremendous hands, uh, a little undersized for a five. Uh, can Pretty good game on the block, like can go with either hand and has some moves down there. USC didn't go to him as much as they should have. They there were times he was just spacing the floor for Nick Rakosevich, which made no sense to me at all, but whatever. Um, and other times the guards would just miss him. Uh, boy, like wasn't a great team he was on, but he was probably the best player in the Pac-12 this year. Um, and then uh, if I can add one other guy here, we haven't talked about Obi Toppin, but offensively he might be the best player in the whole draft. I mean, he is he is really good as far as a stretch four who can also mash you on the post, put it on the floor, run the floor. Like he's he is a full on offensive four who gives you the whole package. One of the things analytically that I think we learned from you is that age matters. Yes, exactly, and that's where in, that's in where Obi gets digged, right? Yeah, right. And he's twenty two. Yeah, that has been proven to be somewhat predictive, right? In in your models, yeah, the age does matter here, and it frustrates fans because it seems to the, and I, and I get it. Like it seems like the longer they've spent in college the more they would be ready for the NBA. But that's just not what the analytics say. Yeah, exactly. Now, Toppin's an interesting case because he's such a late bloomer. He had a late growth spurt. He didn't really come into his shooting ability until this year. Really played last year as just a rebounds and dunks guy as, as freshman year at Dayton. And even then, people were talking about him. Uh, but really blew up this year it was only his sophomore season because there was a prep school year and a redshirt year. Uh, so he's, he's the same age as a lot of seniors in this draft. But I mean, the, the thing with Toppin, he's an older player, but he's an older player who was arguably the best player in college basketball this season. So it wasn't just like he was an old, older player who averaged 12 and eight, you know, like he was, he was awesome this year. So I, I think he has that pushing back in his favor. He reminds me a little bit just watching him of a young Amari Stoudemire. Right. Some of the, some of the like transition plays or some of the dunks like off pick and rolls and stuff. It, it is a little reminiscent, right? He doesn't have, I don't know if he has quite the same like powerful athleticism uh, that Amari did. He might be an inch shorter, but 
there's there's definitely some some parallels there like and the same thing where like his value tilts almost all toward the offensive end as with Amari but I mean they, he's a he's a talented player there's there's no question I think he's getting a little bit of short shrift in this draft maybe okay John thank you so much you want to come back next week and talk about some other guys that aren't in our top five I would love to okay that's John Hollinger You've been listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Network. Aloha.